0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 8, the book of Acts, chapter 3. We are going to deal with some challenging subjects today. So... I hope that you are ready to have those thinking caps on and your hearts opened. Last week we concluded Acts chapter 2 beginning the, and began chapter 3 of Acts. And what we observed was that when we take these verses within the context of second temple Judaism of Jesus' era, And we understand what the cultural mindset and the backdrop was for the Bible characters involved and for the author, who is Luke, only then does the meaning pour forth. For instance, near the end of Acts chapter 2, Peter uses the term the promise as the basis for how he interprets the works and the person of Yeshua, the Messiah. And it isn't necessarily in line with what we might think. Often in Christianity is said that what Peter is getting at is that the promise is referring to the new covenant in Christ. And thus the new covenant is unilateral. That is, the new covenant, within the new covenant, only God has any obligations. The believer has none. Yet in fact, What Peter is alluding to is not the new covenant, but rather a much more ancient one, the Abrahamic covenant. The term, the promise, had for centuries been the nickname for the Abrahamic covenant, and indeed it was a promise to Abraham that was unilateral, that is, all of its obligations fell to God. However, the new covenant is anything but unilateral nor is it a promise on the order of the Abrahamic covenant. So Peter lays out some very specific requirements to take advantage of this new, co- new dynamic that's been brought about by Yeshua's death and resurrection. And first, one must actively turn from their sins. Second, One must sincerely return to God. And third, one must be physically baptized on the authority of Messiah Yeshua. These were three strict conditions for forgiveness and thus salvation. So indeed, believers in Jesus had and continue to have obligations for membership to the community of believers. Now, in that same vein, it's often said that the New Covenant's all about grace, while another earlier covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, was all about works. This is a false dichotomy. Both covenants are based on grace. Because both covenants are based on the theological concept of substitution of an innocent victim in the place of the guilty perpetrator. The primary difference was that the older covenant required the life of an animal as a substitute each time atonement was needed, while the newer covenant required the life of Messiah as a one-time substitute. And as concerns the law, what could demonstrate more grace than for God to let the guilty human being live while an innocent animal died in his or her place. Further, repentance is required for both covenants. An animal sacrifice without repentance was not effectual. Saying one believes in Yeshua for salvation, but without True repentance is equally ineffectual. What we also saw was that true repentance, the kind that provides forgiveness of sins is first and foremost an action. There must be life changes. Mere words, feelings will not do. Past transgressions must end. Then in chapter 2 verse 39, we have Peter explaining just who this promise was extended to. And his answer was to those near and to those far away. In the context of that era, and to Peter's mind therefore, the near were those Jews that were standing before him, and the far away were all the Jews and Israelites of the diaspora. He was not thinking of, he was not speaking about Gentiles at this time. And in fact, some months later, he was still not thinking that Gentiles were to be included. So in Acts chapter 10, we're going to find God using a dream vision to finally get it across to Peter that the promise to Abraham was to be extended to all the families of the earth, not just to Jews. In Acts 10, 34 and 35, then Kepha, Peter, addressed them, I now understand that God does not play favorites, but that whoever fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him no matter what people he belongs to. Next, now still in Acts chapter 2, we discussed this concept of breaking of bread. And we found out that it had nothing to do with a Christian tradition that was formed a few centuries after Peter's day. And that tradition was invented by the Roman Church, and it was called the Sacrament of Communion. The breaking of bread was a regular, long established Jewish tradition of first saying a blessing over the bread at mealtime, then literally breaking it up into pieces and passing it around to the diners. Communion and breaking of bread are in no way connected. And lastly, we moved into Acts chapter 3 and the story of the healing miracle of a crippled man. Now, we just got started last week. We didn't get much past the first couple of verses. So, we're going to reread this chapter in its entirety. So, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1363. Acts chapter 3. One afternoon at 3 o'clock, the hour of the Mecha prayers, as Kepha, Kepha and Yochanan were going up to the temple, a man crippled since birth was being carried in. Every day people used to put him at the beautiful gate of the temple so that he could beg from those going into the temple court. And when he saw Kepha and Yochanan, that's Peter and John, about to enter, he asked them for some money. But they stared straight at him. And Kepha said, look at us. The crippled man fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And Kepha said, I don't have silver, and I don't have gold. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Messiah Yeshua of Nazareth, walk. And taking hold of him by his right hand, Kepha pulled him up and instantly his feet and ankles became strong so that he sprang up, he stood a moment, he began praising God. He walked, he entered the temple court with them, walking, leaping, praising God. Everyone saw him walking and praising God and they recognized him as the same man who had formerly sat begging at the beautiful gate of the temple and they were utterly amazed, confounded at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Kepha and Yochanan, all the people came running in astonishment towards them in Shlomo's colonnade, Solomon's colonnade. Upon seeing this, Kepha addressed the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as if we made this man walk through some power or godliness of our own? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Yeshua, the same Yeshua Yeshua you handed over and disowned before Pilate, even after he had decided to release him. You denied the Holy and Innocent One and instead asked for the reprieve of a murderer. You killed the author of life. But God has raised him from the dead. Of this we are witness. And it is through putting trust in his name that his name has given strength to this man whom you see and you know. Yes, it is the trust that comes through Yeshua which has given him this perfect healing in the presence of you all. Now brothers, I know you did not understand the significance of what you were doing and neither did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had announced in advance when he spoke through all the prophets, namely that his Messiah was to die. Therefore repent, turn to God, so that your sins may be erased. So that times of refreshing may come from the Lord's presence, and he may send the Messiah appointed in advance for you, that is Yeshua. He has to remain in heaven until the time comes for restoring everything, as God said long ago, when he spoke through the holy prophets. For Moses himself said, Ad and I will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You are to listen to everything he tells you. Everyone who fails to listen to that prophet will be removed from the people and destroyed. Indeed, all the prophets announced these days, starting with Shmuel, Samuel, continuing through all who followed, you are the sons of the prophets. You are included in the covenant which God made with our fathers when he said to Avraham, by your seed will all the families of the earth be blessed. So it is to you first that God has sent his servant whom he has raised up so that he might bless you by turning each one of you from your evil ways. Scholars say that what is happening in this chapter is that Peter is outlining his Christology Now Christology is one of the several categories and subject headings that helps to define any particular Christian systematic theology. It's a big word that simply means the religious doctrines that may be derived from the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ. And I would agree that Christology is definitely contained in this chapter. However, what is often lumped in with that Christology are rather standard Jewish understandings and doctrines derived from the Torah and from the traditions of Judaism. But because they occur in the New Testament, these beliefs are often thought to be something new that Yeshua taught, perhaps even different from the Torah. So some of these doctrines are quite important Because they're foundational to our proper understanding of Messiah and of redemption. So we're going to take some time to examine these. Essentially, what we have here in our story is a divine miracle to heal a cripple. But it is done for a larger purpose than making the lame to walk. It is done both as a demonstration of God's healing power through Yeshua, but it also gives Peter a platform to preach, to teach the gospel. The cripple was sitting at a gate called the Beautiful Gate that led into the court of the women. It was one of the main entrances into the temple complex. He would have been outside that gate, not inside, as the lame were considered too blemished to be allowed too near the temple itself. Not even blemished Levites and priests were allowed inside the temple precinct as it introduced ritual impurity to the sacred area. And because so many people passed through this particular gate, the beautiful gate, it was prime real estate for, for, for beseeching alms We should not think that begging was somehow a bad thing. Ironically, Judaism actually saw giving to beggars as a way to achieve merit before God. Thus, there was a mindset that beggars served an important... that provided a means... To, for other Jews to practice a very important Torah principle called tzedakah. Now, tzedakah simply means charity. Beggar and giver then formed a kind of symbiotic relationship such that if there were no poor and lame beggars then the Jews couldn't perform the required charity. In the Babylonian Talmud tractate Baba Bathra we read this excerpt that very well sums up how Second Temple Judaism viewed giving to beggars. There it says this, in response to criticism from Gentiles that challenged the Jewish concept of Zedekah in that if your God loves the poor, why does he not support them? The Hebrew sages replied, so that through giving to them, we may be saved from the punishment of Gehenom. Gehenom is another way of saying hell. In other words, Zedekah had a certain salvation component to it in the minds of many Jewish religious authorities of that era. So beggars were seen as a necessary thing so that Zedekah could happen. At this particular, As this particular beggar spotted, Peter and John walking by him, he stretched out his hand, as usual, hoping for some coins. However, instead of giving him money, Kepha, Peter, offered him something unexpected. When we read in verse 4 that Kepha and Yochanan John, stared at the beggar, this was not a glare of disapproval. Rather, they must have felt an unction from the Holy Spirit to do something truly awesome for this unfortunate individual. You know, eye contact is a powerful thing. Powerful thing. By staring into the eyes of this beggar, they meet a personal connection. They explain to him they're not going to be giving him any money because they don't have any. However, they will give him something valuable that they do possess and they're able to give something even greater than charity. Something greater than sedekah. Peter Peter reached out his own hand. He grasped the hand of the cripple and he said, in the name of Yeshua of Nazareth, walk. He pulled on the man, encouraging him to stand. And miraculously, he did just that. In fact, after feeling the sensation of standing for the first time in his life, he began to walk. Then soon he began to leap all around praising God. Now let's remember that not only had he never since birth had the ability to walk, his legs would have been horrifically atrophied. So the Lord not only repaired whatever it was that was impairing his mobility he instantaneously strengthened those rubbery muscles and ligaments. Now it's no accident that in our Bibles we see the term leaping is employed to describe how this former cripple reacted to his healing. A messianic prophecy known well in Peter's day is found in the book of Isaiah that predicts exactly this. It is as beautifully lyrical as a psalm of David. And it is worth a few minutes of our time to read it all. So please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 489. Isaiah chapter 35. Follow along with me, please. The desert and the dry land will be glad. The Erevah will rejoice and blossom like the lily. It'll burst into flower, will rejoice with joy and singing, will be given the glory of the Lebanon, the splendor of Carmel and the Sharon. They will see the glory of of Adonai, the splendor of our God. Strengthen your drooping arms and steady your tottering knees. Say to the faint-hearted, be strong, unafraid. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance. With God's retribution, He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame man will leap like a deer. The mute person's tongue will sing. For in the desert springs will birth forest, streams of water in the Arabah. The sandy mirage will become a pool. The thirsty ground springs of water. The haunts where jackals lie down will become a marsh filled with reeds and papyrus. A highway will be there, a way called the Way of Holiness. The unclean will not pass over it, but it will be for those whom he guides. Fools will not stray along it. No lion or other beast of prey will be there traveling on it. They will not be found there, but the redeemed will go there. Those ransomed by Adonai will return and come with singing to Zion on their heads will be everlasting joy they will acquire gladness joy while sorrow and sighing will flee isn't that a beautiful beautiful passage so you see when people saw this crippled man from birth leaping around like a deer many would have recognized it as a messianic prophetic fulfillment, which of course is what God intended and it's what it was. And Peter made it clear that this healing was in the name of Yeshua. Now notice also that only after he was healed did the lame man enter into the temple grounds. To repeat, no blemished person, not even a Levite, could enter into the temple grounds because it brought defilement to the holiness of the place. So for the first time in his life, this man could enter into the temple, which meant he could now offer sacrifices of atonement on the altar. But I want you to think on that for a moment. His crippled condition also meant he had no avenue to atone for his sins. I mean, what a great picture this paints of the purpose for the law of Moses which was provided for God's crippled people to have a means of atonement from their sins a means that had never existed before and then later through Yeshua an even greater means was provided for an entire crippled world of humanity to be able to atone for our sins I want to take a bit of a detour at this time to talk about a a challenging subject that is brought up as early in the Bible as the Torah and it continues on throughout the New Testament and it is the relationship between sin and sickness. Now I ask for all your attention and your concentration because this is not easy. Which is probably why it's not often talked about in our synagogues or our churches, except only in the simplest terms. Now, depending on the various denominational views, committing a sinful act, uh, rather committing sinful acts, either is or is not a direct cause of physical sickness. And various Bible verses can be found to support either doctrine here's an example of a passage that seems to favor believing that sinful acts do cause sickness in John 5.1 after this there was a Judean festival and Yeshua went up to Jerusalem. and Jerusalem, by the sheep gate is a pool called an aromatic Beth Zeta or you better know it as Beth in which lay a crowd of invalids, lame, blind, crippled. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years, and Yeshua said to him, I'm skipping down two or three verses, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And immediately the man was healed, and he picked up his mat and walked. Skipping down a few more verses to verse 14. Afterwards, Yeshua found him in the temple court, Remember now how he can be in the temple court. And said to him, see you are well. Now stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. But in another passage that seems to say something entirely different, we read words that imply that sinning is not necessarily tied directly to sickness or disability. In John chapter 9, starting at verse 1, Yes, Yeshua passed along and saw a man blind from birth and his Talmudim, his disciples, asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, to cause him to be born blind? And Yeshua answered, His blindness is due neither to his sin nor to that of his parents. It happened so that God's power might be seen at work in him. Now, depending on denominational views since God is able to heal then a believer either prays and seeks medical help or one should only pray and shun medical help the idea being that seeking a human to heal us would signify a lack of faith in our God we're going to deal with both of these matters because it is profoundly important to our story and, of course, to our lives. The first thing to know about sin and sickness is that from a biblical perspective, they both represent a lack of wholeness. Wholeness. Sin is the lack of spiritual wholeness. Sickness is the corresponding lack of physical wholeness. And what we learn in scripture is that the lack of spiritual and physical wholeness are connected and they work hand in hand. We also learn from the Bible that the lack of wholeness is an affront to the Lord. So he has set down rules and regulations regarding it. In fact, Jehovah has set up a barrier between him and unwhole mankind because he can't have unwhole anything in his presence as the lack of wholeness defiles holiness. The lack of wholeness defiles holiness. Therefore, heaven is a place that is divided and separated away. It's protected from the entire physical universe. And for humans, this boundary between the two, between heaven and earth, cannot be crossed over without very specific circumstances occurring. And those two circumstances are, first, our physical death. And second, righteousness imputed to us, God's believers, by His divine grace, and through God's Son, Yeshua. That's the two requirements. Thus, for instance, when I told you that a Levite or a priest with a blemish a missing finger, or a substantial burn, or maybe even a crippled foot. They can't serve at the temple. It is because of this principle of wholeness. Essentially, you see, the purpose for redemption is to create wholeness in people who aren't whole. And everybody is born not whole, both spiritually and and physically because of the fall of Adam and Eve. Let me say it again because it's one of the most critical and I think least talked about biblical principles of God. Redemption is not the goal in and of itself. Redemption is the means to the goal. The purpose and goal for redemption is the restoration of wholeness to humanity. Do you see that? Thus when sin, a spiritual element, entered the physical world, so did its counterpart, sickness and death. One of the several outstanding things that Messiah Yeshua's death on the cross did was to pay, or tone, not only for our sins that is, our wrong behaviors or our wrong attitudes that go against the Torah, his sacrificial death also paid for our condition of sin, our sin nature that we're all born with. That is, a newborn infant is born with a sin nature before he or she even has an opportunity to commit a sinful act. The Levitical system of altar sacrifices could pay only for sinful acts, not for our sinful nature. And even then, not all sinful acts could be atoned for. Christ's death covered it all. So indeed, it is vastly superior to anything that the death of an animal could atone for. But let me also be clear. The law of Moses and the accompanying sacrificial system using animals for atonement worked. Over and over in the Torah, after explaining a law and what the requisite sacrifice was to atone for breaking that law, It was directly said that provided the sacrifice was done with an attitude of repentance, the sinner was forgiven. However, it had its limitations. The sickness is the tangible, physical manifestation of the invisible spiritual condition of sin. It is once again our example of the reality of duality principle. The spiritual world and the physical world operating in lockstep. We get a dramatic illustration of this in the Torah concerning Miriam, Moses' sister. In Numbers chapter 12, 6 through 10, we read this. He said, listen to what I say. When there is a prophet among you, I, Adonai, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. But it isn't that way with my servant Moses. He's the only one who is faithful in my entire household. With him I speak face to face and clearly, not in riddles. He sees the image of Adonai. So why weren't you afraid to criticize my servant Moses? The anger of I flared up against them and he left. But when the cloud was removed from above the tent, Miriam had Sarat as white as snow. Aaron looked at Miriam and she was white as snow. So Miriam's hidden spiritual condition became apparent on the outside of her body for everyone to see. Sickness in the form of a skin disease. And so it is the same for all mankind. We get physically sick because we are spiritually sick. And while we can certainly mitigate part of that by not committing sins, we can't fully mitigate the other part, which is our sin natures. Those sin natures are going to stay with us until we die. And then if we are believers, we will someday return to earth with glorified bodies that have different natures. Only then will we be no longer subject to sickness. Because only then will we no longer be subject to sin. Do you see the connection? One more interesting bit of information. Wholeness or restoration to perfect health is in Greek holoclarion. Holoclarion. It means to bring something to sound well-being and thus complete health. In the Greek version... Of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. This rarely used word, holoclarion, refers to an unblemished animal that is thus qualified for sacrifice because of its perfect soundness. That is, the animal is suitable for use by God because it's whole, it works the same way with humans. A human must be brought to holoclarion, wholeness, in order to be usable for God. Now, the second part of the matter of sin and sickness. As a practical issue, what are believers to do when we inevitably get physically sick? The reality is that the biblical attitude towards healers and medicine men and physicians was strongly negative in the Torah for instance we read this about healing from sickness or injury in Deuteronomy 32-39 see now that I, God, yes I am He and there is no God beside me I put to death and I make alive I wound and I heal no one saves anyone from my hand Here's another example in 2 Chronicles 16, 12, and 13. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa suffered a disease in his legs. It was a very serious disease. Yet even with this disease, he did not seek out an eye, but he turned to the physicians. And Asa slept with his ancestors, dying in the 41st year of his reign. And this famous saying of Christ in the book of Luke, Luke 4.23 Then Yeshua said to them, No doubt you will quote quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. See, there was a prevailing attitude among the Hebrews, both ancient and in Peter's day, that practicing healing was part magic, part medicine, and short on miracle and faith. Jews were skeptical, and in fact they were fearful, of doctors. It was by firm reliance on the healing power of the Lord that the Israelites depended. The Jews all the more despised the Greeks and the Romans because the occupation of physician was usual and normal in their pagan Hellenistic society. Medicine was already an ancient practice. Yet beginning about a hundred years before Christ, doctors among the Hebrews started to make headway. And they were seen less as heretics to the Jewish religious faith and increasingly they were seen as an extension of God's healing hand on earth. Thus even the author of the book of Acts, Luke, a man called a God-fearer who accompanied Paul on some of his missionary journeys is explicitly labeled as a physician. And obviously he was well accepted as there is no evidence that he had to give up his occupation in order to join the community of believers. Well, as with all changes within a society, attitude evolution is slow. And so both viewpoints of doctors being counter to God and also being an agent of God existed at the same time. In the book of the Apocrypha known both as Ecclesiasticus and as the wisdom of Sirach, chapter 38, we find an example of this more accepting attitude of medical practitioners existing alongside a traditional bent against doctors. Let me quote this for you. My son, in thy sickness be not negligent, but pray to the Lord, and he will make thee whole. Leave off from sin, and order thy hands aright, and cleanse thy heart from all wickedness. Give a sweet savor, an animal sacrifice, and a memorial of fine flour. This is the usual mincha offering that goes with an animal sacrifice. And make a fat offering. But he that sinneth before his maker, let him fall into the hand of a physician. So the idea is that if a person is righteous before the Lord, then they should seek healing solely by the Lord. But if a person was an unrepentant sinner, then they ought to seek a human physician. Thus there was an acknowledgement that indeed physicians could legitimately heal even if they weren't very respected by the more pious Jews. And in time we find some well-known rabbis becoming renowned doctors, especially as the Jewish people began to adopt the viewpoint that medicine and the skill of, of a physician was itself a gift of kindness and provision from the Lord. In the end, both mainstream Judaism and Christianity have decided that prayer and medicine are a good prescriptive combination for battling sickness, although in what proportion is hardly broadly agreed to and in some cases medicine is still shunned as an affront to God what this tells us is that Peter and John would have been immediately labeled as Jewish healers by the Jews who witnessed this formerly lame man now fully healed the two disciples tried to deflect that by quickly announcing that the healing was an issue of faith in God through Yeshua and thus it was a divine miracle they weren't physicians and they weren't practitioners of magic we're going to continue with Acts chapter 3 next time and we will get into additional important doctrinal principles that are being introduced by Peter